We are very excited to welcome Reverend Jonathan Fisk this year. Uh, some of you know that we had him secured a few years back, and uh, pesky little COVID got the way and uh, not only ruined our plans here, but a lot of other plans. But um, we're excited that uh, all of you are back, to, uh, back with us tonight. Look like we've had a lot of first timers here, so welcome to the men's gathering, and please give a big welcome to Reverend Jonathan Fisk. Thank you. I haven't uh, really been asked to speak publicly almost since COVID. I've had one appearance and it's a new thing to come back to this. Uh, the world's changed. I'm not even sure what I'm supposed to talk about. I, I used to be the do the Lutheran theology but funny and fast guy, right? Um, and, and now it's I don't know. I don't know what the niche is. I don't know what we need. But uh, tonight, I'm going to be very raw with you, for sure. Um, first thing, I want to know, is there anyone here who does already practice the Sons of Solomon prayer discipline? Is there anybody? Hands up. So, 10 of us. Okay, that's good. That's good. I, that, that's exciting to me. Um, I hope that by the end of the evening, I've convinced all of you to give the Sons of Solomon prayer discipline a try because we have here in this idea, in this little mini psalter or breviary, you can call it whatever you want, a prayer book, um, we have a way that Lutheran men specifically, but really Christian men, can all unite together for a single common purpose without divisions that we normally have to deal with, say, when we're going to commune together. Um, but we don't have to deal with those divisions if we're just meeting a guy on the street and saying, hey, man, have you ever prayed the Psalms before? I know you love the Bible. And he goes, what? I can pray those? Right? We can help other Christians, as well as ourselves as men of integrity in the Lutheran Church, become unified in ways that are really uh, not beyond imagination, but beyond our imaginations. Our imaginations have been uh, weakened yeah, movies, noise, noise, noise. Um, uh, way back, 150 years ago, I think it wasn't hard to imagine having a common tongue with your brother, uh, being able to speak in unity, running into another Lutheran and, and knowing what each other believed and thought and being able to talk about it very quickly. And I think a lot of that's been lost to us. I don't want to tonight try to make an apologetic for why. I just want to give us an antidote. And for me, Sons of Solomon has been, as a Christian man, and then a father, and then a pastor. It has been one of the absolute best things I have ever, ever done. Um, and I've seen this have impact on other men too. Uh, any of those guys who raise their hands, I would hope you can ask them and they'll tell you do it. Um, so that's my goal tonight, is to walk you through what this document is, uh, what it's not, and how, uh, it, just think of it. If, if all of us in this room decided to pray the same 10 Psalms, Every single day, together, wherever we are, we're separate, but together, we're going to pray the same 10 Psalms every day in Jesus' name for one year. How much bad could it do? How hard would it be to try? So why not, right? And that's, that's what this is. And it's already a year and a half in the ground with hundreds of participants all over the world at this point. Uh, the potential to do something we haven't done as Lutherans since Lutheran Layman League and KFUO Radio first really broke ground. And it's not by taking new technology, it's, it's very old technology. Uh, paper, paper, I know, and the Bible, the words of the Bible. So we'll get to the document here in just a second. Um, something I think I've learned, I think, <laughs> that the hardest part of being a man is the fear because at least in, in Western civilization, you're not supposed to have any. To be a man is to, is to not be afraid. But the problem I've found is that I still am. I'm afraid of a lot of things, too many things, things that don't even make sense if I write it out on paper. And yet physically, I will enter into fear states because of it. And I, I don't think I'm alone. I think I've got a pretty unique walk, but I don't think I'm alone. I think a lot of men struggle with well, what, what do I do with the fear since I'm not supposed to have it and I keep having it? And frankly, the days are getting so dark. It's getting harder and harder not to be absolutely terrified. 
of what's going to come next. So we can make jokes about EMPs and generators and wells and things. And everyone laughs a little bit and chuckles, ha <laughs> ha. But we all know that, no, no, this is a possibility. Uh, and if it were and if it is, it's going to be something we just can't even dream of in terms of the, the wreckage that could be caused. And, and everybody's kids know this. That's why they're terrified. They're wearing the masks afraid of everything. Uh, they know that the world is dangerous. They don't know where to go. So I've learned that the hardest part of being a man is the fear. But I've also learned that the fear of Jesus Christ is the beginning of wisdom. I've learned that by seeking wisdom, right, applying the ear, inclining it to understanding, crying out for discernment, lifting up your voice for understanding, seeking it as for silver, searching for it as for treasure, it is possible to find the fear of Jesus Christ. And that that is the, it says Proverbs here, Proverbs 2, verse 5, the knowledge of God. Lutherans, we'd say theology. Okay? But, but the knowledge of God is the fear of Jesus Christ. And we can get into big scholastic debates upon, does that mean really fear? Do you have to really be afraid of Jesus? I, I just, I want to throw that kind of thinking just out the window. How about we all recognize Jesus as God and our King and so, frankly, if I've got a man over here with a gun and i got Jesus behind me, who should I more trust? Well, Jesus behind me, because he's terrifying. Because he's God, because he's the king. Because if that guy with the gun blows my head off on judgment day, I'm getting my own back. And maybe it's I get to forgive him, because that would be amazing. You die and you wake up and your killer's a Christian now? What a thing that would be. I get to know that, or, or I ought to know that. Why don't I know that? Why is it so hard to remember that in a daily walk these days? Well, some of that, I think, is that the number of messages that we have going in far outweigh uh, what we think. Uh, and so we think we're living in a modern American marvel land where there's just marvel. There's the word even, right? There's just so much cool stuff. And I can just take it and leave it and it'll never change me. But the fact is, if you step out like an alien and watch 60 years of us, you know, we've changed a whole lot, and Hollywood has a whole bunch to do with it. And it isn't just about morals. It's about how we don't think about the Bible. We, we, we're too busy having fun, doing other things. And I'm, I'm all for fun. I had great fun this week. But what I've learned about fear again is that the more I don't fear God on a daily basis, the more I fear man. And the more the fun I try to have ends up being a disappointment or a frustration, something I'm trying to hold together as opposed to the free gift, which does arise every day, uh, regardless when Jesus is your God. You can wake up tomorrow in prison and Jesus is your God. He's going to be with you. He's going to have a plan for you, to redeem you, to give you words to say and strength and hope, all these things. And so having found, again, a new level of this or a, an experience of this that I didn't get from um, memorizing answers for tests, I got from praying the Psalter. Um, that's, again, what I want to start then sharing with you. Uh, at least one more story here, though. I remember, and this is, this is to my shame, I think, but it's funny a little bit. Um, uh, first weekend before seminary, I'm not one of these guys who had all the tests done. I had to take some Greek classes and stuff, but we're all invited to this um, one-day seminar through the Bible in a day. Whole class, 160 guys are invited to this seminar. It's not required. So like 30 guys show up. Yeah. And I'm one of them. So I'm, I'm pious. I'm at, I'm at seminary. I don't learn the Bible. Teach me. I show up and, and uh, read Lessing. If ever you, and any of you have ever met or heard him, he's an amazing speaker. And so it was a great four hours. <laughs> uh, but, but he said one thing that I remember so vividly. He said it was in the middle of the day and he just threw it out there. He said, all the church fathers agree that if you don't read and pray the Psalms every day, you aren't really a theologian or even a Christian. And I went, huh, that's interesting. And I went right on and didn't do a thing with that knowledge for like 15 years. And it wasn't until COVID shutdown that that knowledge came back to me a little bit. But it, it didn't come in a direct way. I want to share the route with you a little bit. If you have your Bible with you, 
Um, you can look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Um, if not, don't worry, I'll read it out loud for you, and it's not that much tonight. Uh, do have your Bibles for tomorrow morning's study, especially. You'll get a handout with some Hebrew on it, but you'll want your English close by uh, at that point. So uh, it, it's, it was during the shutdown, you know, I don't know what it was like for you. I was in, I was in Illinois, and uh, it was pretty draconian for the most part. Michigan, I think, was worse from what I understand. Um, but they, you know, the nice thing was they encouraged us all to take walks every day with our families for two weeks. That was kind of fun. And, you know, it all seemed like it was good American spirit pulled together. We'll get through this. Um, and, and then the guy who told us don't wear masks said wear masks. And I just said, well, I don't understand anything anymore. And I really began to question everything. And, I, and when I say everything, I don't just mean like who my government is, although I've, I've got some serious questions about who's actually pulling strings, but you know, whatever. We can, we can, we can shoot that later for fun. But um, uh, the questions I, I really started to ask were, how do I know what I know at all? Because up to this point, I knew what I knew because that talking screen told me. And I had to admit that to myself and that I was done with that. No matter what I was going to find as a use for that talking screen, it wasn't how I know what I know. No more, not for me. Uh, and so well, how do I know what I know? I'm a Christian. I think I probably, I and mean, I'm a Lutheran pastor, maybe I should read the confessions, but maybe this is the moment where instead of saying confessions, Jonathan, you should go back to the Bible. And I'm sitting kind of in my office study area, which is like half built into a closet in the smallest room in our rental house. And, and I'm, I'm sitting there with the Bible and I, I don't even know what to read, but I remember opening to Ecclesiastes. I mean, this has got to be two and a half weeks into March 20. Um, I opened Ecclesiastes, and I almost read it cover to cover. I, I didn't quiet, but it just, it just dragged me into it, just completely pulled me into it. And that began the Sons of Solomon concept, which is sort of, where'd that book go? I don't think it was mentioned at seminary. Proverbs? I, I don't remember. I mean, I know I had like a Psalms and Writings course, but most of it was like just translating very specific verses of certain psalms for the prof. That was almost all I remember. But in terms of like, hey, how about this book by the wisest guy ever written about how to be wise? It's real important, pastors. Read it. Like every day, read it. Why? Because it's going to make you not stupid. That's why. But, but what about Paul? Paul's great, but it's not the book of wisdom. You want to define the difference between James and Paul? It's very simple. James and Paul don't teach differently. James teaches wisdom. He's all about wisdom. Whole thing, he's quoting Proverbs often. Uh, so again, I dive into Ecclesiastes, and it's at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes that it, it, this is what I just kind of said to you about the wisest guy I ever wrote a book about wisdom. It kind of clicked for me. And this is in chapter 12, verse uh, 9 and following. So after he writes all of Ecclesiastes, which... I'll say, I think this is the first book he wrote. Um, uh, he wrote it after he had fallen away with foolishness. He details this in the book. He says, I chose to be foolish with my wisdom, kind of knowing I couldn't fall away to see how foolish I could be so I could tell you about it. And don't do it is, is sort of what it comes down to, right? Live today. Uh, vanity of vanity is more vapor of vapor, moment by moment. It's not all about futility. If all rivers run into the sea, is that a bad thing? It's kind of why we go and sit by rivers, isn't it? Uh, and so, so it's a beautiful book. It's a treatise on coming back to realization that folly is foolishness and God is good. And then I think at this point, though, he's also been told, um, you know, because of your idolatry, Solomon, in spite of the fact that you did this good thing, you're going to write this amazing book. The kingdom's going to be split in half and ripped away from your son. And so he starts writing a book and he's, my son, be wise. My son, hold on to wisdom. My son, please seek wisdom. Right? So I think Proverbs and all those my sons, are his wanting to teach Rehoboam uh, what he knew now after his repentance. And then if you want to go awesome typology, just imagine what eight-year-old Jesus thought when he first started hearing, my son, seek wisdom, right? And, oh, that was, that was written for me, I think, is what he would have thought. But, so the end of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 9, uh, he says, it says, moreover, because the preacher, this is Solomon, Koholeth, and preacher also means gatherer, like the word church, gathering, the preacher, the one who gathered with words, was wise. He still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many Proverbs. I think that's a commendation of the book of Proverbs, is what I think that that is. And then there's a little commentary now on 
on what Proverbs is about in verse 10. The preacher sought to find acceptable words. And what was written was upright. Words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. And the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these. And I think the, the verse break should be there. And that of the making of many books is the next thing he says. Be admonished by these is what came above. These goads, these good nails. Goad, by the way, do you remember? Is it Shamgar? The judge kills all the guys with the ox goad. You're like, what's that? It's like a baseball bat with a giant spike on the end of it, right? Kind of early cudgel. Um, and mainly for your ox, because he's not going to move. And you want him to move to pull the plow, and so you hit him with the nail, uh, the ox goad. So it's a big nail. It's a spike, like what they drove into Jesus, in fact. Very similar. Um, and, uh, and then he mentions well-driven nails. I, <laughs> You know, we, we, we're working on this facility called the Hebron Collegium, and I'll maybe talk about that tomorrow. But one of the things we did was we're building a jiu-jitsu mat facility inside, and we had to take apart this giant wooden shelf structure the guy who was a builder, a house builder, had put in his garage. And I'll tell you, it had more well-driven nails than I could ever imagine. And I, I learned what that meant, and, and it means they don't come out. I, that tool today, though, Mike, that's, that was really cool. Would that have done it? Yeah, that was something. Anyway... Um, so, well-driven nails, they don't come out is the point. A goat, it moves an ox. You know how big an ox is? You just tap it with the goat, it moves, right? The words that Solomon sought out and set down in order are like those things. And I'm like, why am I not reading that book? Shouldn't I read that book, like, every day? And again, Sons of Solomon becomes an idea in my head, uh, which is at the very least, it'd be good for men and myself particularly to at least read the Proverbs, one proverb a day and ponder it. And that is kind of the foundation of what it means to be a son of Solomon. We're going to add a prayer discipline to it as well. But if you'll start on page 13 of the document, we'll just talk about the Proverbs. And, you know, another caveat here. Lutherans have a history of recognizing there's a problem with vows. And the problem with vows is you get your conscience tied up and you end up condemning yourself over things that you don't need to condemn yourself about. Um, so when I say prayer discipline, hey, pray these 10 Psalms every day for a year, and you say, I'll do it, please. That's not a vow. Um, that's your yes, being yes, and you're going to try, and that's good. But there's nothing here that's going to earn us anything. What, what we're trying to do is remember that we get fed by God in his word. And then when we eat the same stuff, it, it like ties us together. It binds us as people to each other, right? So again, what if we're all eating the Proverbs every day? Page 13 says, ponder a proverb daily. You've heard some of this out of my mouth already. God wrote a book about wisdom. It says those who read it will be wise. Those who would rather listen to folly, not so much. How do you start? Start in chapter 10. Read one verse a day. Translate the proverb into your own words. Carry that thought with you on a piece of paper throughout the day. Pray that you might use the thought in a conversation. Leave the note alone for a week. Read it again. Repeat the process. Whether you consider a chapter, a verse, or a single word, get wisdom. Because that is, get wisdom. Get more. Get in there. Find something to do with it. Why chapter 10? Uh, the next page helps with that a little. Book of Proverbs is really five different books um, or five different sections. Uh, Proverbs 1 through 9, I, I think is a dictionary that Solomon wrote about Hebrew theology. But however you look at it, it's a huge epic poem about lady wisdom and dame folly. And it, it doesn't read like small tidbits of wisdom, however. Um, that's what chapter 10 through 24 does reads like small tidbits of wisdom. So start at chapter 10, because if you've never done this before, trying to read Proverbs 8 is going to be a little heady. Um, but chapter 10 is going to immediately give you applicable stuff, especially if you take chapter 10, verse 1, tomorrow morning, and you look at it, you read it, read it out loud, and consider writing something down. I don't care where you write it down, you know, a napkin that you throw out, but the, the idea that you take it in your ear, your eye, through your brain, and back out your hand again, into your eye again while you're writing it out, 
creates like extra layers of depth in you, right? It just shoves it deeper. And so just by taking that one proverb, hearing it out loud, writing down what you think it means, throwing it away, you've doubled your, your value. You put it in your pocket, you read it five hours later, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Oh, that's good, yeah. Tripled your value, right? So the idea is like, let instead of saying, I'm gonna read all the Proverbs in three weeks, right? Um, take like three years to read Proverbs, uh, one verse at a time, and trust that it will change you. Don't read it and try to change. Don't read it and try to get wise. Don't read it and try it. Just, just, just be there. And the promise of the scriptures is that it's going to empower you, enliven you. And I, I think we can double down on this when we add Jesus' name to the equation, which I'll, I'll explain in, in a little bit here. Um, but continuing the five books of Proverbs, so chapter 10 through 24 is the biggest one. Um, it's all set in order by Solomon. Chapter 25 through 29, I like to call the book of Hezekiah. Uh, if you look at it in the text, it'll say right there in, in 25 verse 1 uh, that these are Proverbs that Hezekiah and his men copied from Solomon. Um, some of them are earlier in the book. They're direct copies. Some of them are not. They're new. So were they other copies of Solomon's po or, uh, Proverbs that they put in, or, or was it ones that Hezekiah himself wrote based on what he learned? I don't know. I think it, the imagination there is free to run wild a little bit. But can you imagine this, though? I mean, Hezekiah is living hundreds of years after Solomon. He's finding Proverbs after his father, uh, Ahaz, has almost destroyed Christianity in the land. He's found Torah. He's found Proverbs. It's not Josiah's Reformation where they lost it entirely, but he's studying it enough that he wants to write his own addendum to it. Right? And who's Hezekiah? Well, he's, he's one of the greatest kings that ever, ever lived, frankly. Uh, he's an amazing man. Uh, and what, what made him amazing? Why did he know to go in and ask Isaiah in the temple courts what God wanted him to do? Why was he willing to trust? Oh, I would suggest it was because he was reading the Proverbs. I think he was reading Torah too. I think he was praying the Psalter too. But again, he then goes and adds chapter 25 to 29 on. And then you have these two other sections that I just find gloriously fun. You know, the riddles of Agur in, in Proverbs 30. We don't even know who Agur is. Um, uh, but it's just a powerful section of like the most Eastern sounding riddles you could imagine. You know, I, I, I can't quote it, but I enjoy that section. Uh, and then uh, book five, Proverbs 31, uh, the words of Lemuel's mother, King Lemuel, who also we don't know who he is, um, uh, has a chapter where whatever his mother taught him, he then teaches. And, and this is the vaunted Proverbs 31 that the Proverbs 31 wife or the Proverbs 31 woman idea comes out of. That's only the second half of the chapter, though. The first half of the chapter is about how a mother should talk to her son. <laughs> uh, it's really a, an amazing, amazing chapter in the Bible and one that uh, sadly is underutilized. Um, although Sons of Solomon, uh, as a group, has a way to, to encourage that for our women. If, if you're interested, I can talk about that later. So reading a proverb every day. That's step one of being a son of Solomon. Um, step two is to add the Psalter. And the Psalter is a big book, 150 Psalms. That's a lot. Um, I once heard a story about a man who um, had been in the Gulag archipelago, uh, in the Gulags of, uh, of Russia, and uh, no longer was. He's an American citizen. Uh, and I believe he's Jewish, but he's also a Christian. Uh, and the story is just that uh, when he got out, he began praying the entire Psalter every day, and he just never stopped. Okay, he doesn't want to go back. <laughs> That's the end of it. Or if he goes back, he wants to have the Psalter with him. And it will be, because he's praying it every day. Um, Psalter's a big book. Praying the whole Psalter every day or every week, you're going to find you've, you've bit off a lot for a modern person to chew. So what, we've, what I've done here with uh, the, the 10 Psalms in the Sons of Solomon discipline is try to make psalm prayer, something you can just get a taste of. It's enough to challenge, but it's, it's small enough, though, you can really do it. Um, and the idea is that you don't stop with this, but that this is your gateway uh, into the Psalter as, as God's prayers that he always answers for you. So um, there are different sections in the Psalter. There's five different books, and how those books are organized and why is a fascinating topic. Um, uh, 
within the last book, there's a series called the Psalms of Ascent or the Psalms of Going Up. And they are largely post-exilic, that is after the destruction of the Jerusalem temple by Babylon and the sending of Judites to Babylon and then their return um, under Zerubbabel uh, leading into, perhaps you're familiar with the time of the Maccabees. But these Psalms of Ascent were, were gathered at that time and used at that time in a couple of ways, um, but primarily as sort of a pilgrim's hymnal. So after the exile, what you have is that uh, not only Jews, that is Judites, but also what will become called Jews, but include, you know, Simeonites and, and all these other groups from the north, that some of them were scattered and did not disappear um, under the Assyrian destruction, um, as they're all beginning to come back to this new temple for sacrifices, for Passover and for um, Feast of Booths and all these things, um, this collection of psalms is the Psalter they sang kind of officially as they went. Or there's psalms about that time, that place, and the return to Jerusalem from exile. So let me put that a different way. There's psalms designated for a time when the church doesn't belong where she is. There's psalms for when you as a Christian feel out of place and surrounded by your enemies who are also your neighbors. They're not actually killing you, but they don't really like you. They think you're less than you should be. And you find that the world of men is one that you would rather leave. But you can't. But you know you're going to because Zion is going to descend from heaven on high. Or if you're a Jew at this time, you're going to walk back to Jerusalem and you're going to be surrounded by your people and you're going to eat the Passover lamb again and remember that Yahweh is your God. So that's what these are designed for as a group to help you do that. There's another way that they're used. I believe that some of the priests would use them stepping up every step to the temple also for the same kind of reasons though and connected to the same festivals. So for a time such as this, they're pretty poignant. They really fit where we are. Um, and that's why I think they've spoken to that, you know, all the individuals who've tried this discipline, who cling to it and hold on to it, um, because they speak to us where we are. And then what I've done with them is we, we've set them up so that they're spread throughout your day. There's a number of reasons for that. So you can see that right there in front of you. They're not in order the way they are in the Bible, but you know, in the morning you got 123, 125, 127. And then they, kind of, they jump around, but they're all there. Um, the timing is like, it's not a bug, it's a feature. Um, first off, if you sit down and do 10 Psalms straight through, it's, that's quite a bit. You can do it. It can be very fulfilling. You can really have a great Saturday morning like that if you get used to that. You can maybe need a little endurance. Um, but see, you can do that. But what's also going to happen is you're not going to take away very much from it. You're going to forget a lot of what you read, which is okay. Exposure is good. Um, but there's something about zooming in and narrowing down on just a little bit of something. And so part of the spreading out of these psalms over the day is to give you space to let it sink in, to let it have time with you, this word of God, and to let the word of God not only be something you touch in the morning, you know, but you touch at night before bed, you touch at lunch, uh, you touch before, before dinner. Um, one of the real cool side effects of this then um, is that praying four times a day uh, can become a bit of a clock. You can sort of measure your bodily needs throughout the day. It's time to get up and walk around and pray again. Um, it's, it's kind of a powerful thing. Uh, also, what I found personally is it's hard. Don't get me wrong. This is hard. If you want to do this, you're going to feel bad. You're going to try and not do it. You're going to want to do it and not do it. You're going to have days where you're like, oh, I ought to do this one, but I don't feel like it right now. You'll get to the end of the night and you'll try to catch up. Like, that's all good in my book. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to suffer. You're supposed to try. You're supposed to try, right? Um, but the, the thing is set up again then so that each time you actually get the words out of your mouth, they're going to matter for you in the day where you are. Now, let me take you through that. So in the morning, this next page, or we'll skip page three, we'll come back to that. In the morning, you know, the first thing you say is Psalm 123, uh, unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of a servant look to the hand of his master, as the eyes of a maiden to the hand of her mistress, so do my eyes look to you. Jesus Christ, until you have mercy on us. Have mercy on us, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt. 
Our soul is exceedingly filled with the contempt of the proud, with the scorn of those who are at ease. My translation is a little bit different. I memorized it before we published the booklet. So you got the New King James in front of you verbatim. And I, I translate my own text sometimes. So, so the idea is that first thing in the morning, you're looking up to God. You're saying, I need your mercy because the world's full of stuff that I'm not ready for, right? And then uh, Psalm 125 is the next one. It's the, this is like the bedrock of the morning. Um, and by the way, if, if all of this is too much and you can do nothing else, you'll do the proverb every day. If you can do nothing else, do Psalm 125 every day. Just grab it, do it, say it out loud in the morning every single day. That those who trust in Jesus Christ are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. And as Jerusalem, she is surrounded by mountains, so Jesus Christ surrounds his people from this time forth and even forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land allotted to the justified, lest the justified reach out their hands unto iniquity. And you pray, do good, O Jesus, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. And then, this is so powerful, but to those who turn aside to their crooked ways, Jesus Christ will lead them away with the workers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. There's some power here in praying about your enemies. It's going to come out throughout the day. But to be able to say first thing in the morning, I'm going to stand on the rock of Jesus Christ. He's going to make me to live. And as for those who don't like that, it's on them. Jesus Christ will handle them in his own time. It's not for me to carry in my heart. That's a powerful thing, first thing in the morning. Um, Then you have Psalm 127 to remind you that as you go off to work, you go off to slave, you go off to do whatever you're going to do, unless Jesus Christ builds your house, you're laboring in vain, right? Unless Jesus Christ watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It's in vain you rise up early. In vain you go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious sorrow, while he gives to their, his beloved, now the text probably says um, sleep, right? Um, he gives to the, his beloved while they sleep would be the best possible translation of that. So while you're in sleep, he's taking care of you, right? You don't have to stay up late. He's got it covered. Right. Um, surely sons are a heritage from Jesus, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Uh, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the sons of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, for they shall not be ashamed. They shall speak with their enemies in the gate. So uh, after standing on the rock of Mount Zion, knowing that you're going to be confirmed in faith no matter what comes in your day, you're also able to say, whatever house gets built, Jesus built it. So I might as well just kind of hang out, <laughs> help, <laughs> you know, try, but not get too upset if things don't go my way. Because, in fact, it's his way, and he's got a plan. So if you, if you manage to do that, right, and then uh, 10, 11 o'clock in the uh, morning comes along, you're, you're probably getting a lot done, three hours of email, or I don't know. You're getting a little exhausted. You've got to get up, go to the water cooler. It's time for lunch and all this. You certainly don't feel like you're winning. I'm pretty sure. 10, 30, 11 o'clock, it's not like, yeah, more of this, right? Um, and so that's where these two prayers, uh, Psalm 124 and 129, they're just all about that. They're, they're all about how I'm, I'm just drowning. <laughs> I'm not going to make it. Um, but, but my God is still here, right? So uh, 124, if it had not been Jesus Christ who was on our side, let Israel now say. If it had not been Jesus Christ who was on our side when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive when their wrath was kindled against us and the waters would have overwhelmed us. The stream would have gone over our soul and the swollen waters would have gone over our soul. Blessed be Jesus Christ who has not given us his prey to their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of Jesus Christ who made heaven and earth. Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth, let Israel now say. Many a time they've afflicted me from my youth. Who is that, by the way? Many a time, let Israel say, they've afflicted me from my youth. It's the church. It's the church. It's Jesus himself. They plowed on my back, it says next. Imagine the lashes on Jesus' back, but also imagine how the uh, liberals and liars and men with seared consciences have seeped into church organizations and scuttled the money for their own pet projects and refused to preach the gospel or rightly justify men of clean conscience. And just think about that as well, right? Many a time has the church been kept down by liars, Babylonian captivity, the papacy, you name it. Many a time they've afflicted me from my youth, but they have not prevailed against me. Flowers plot on my back, and it hurt. And they made their furrows long, it hurt. Jesus Christ is righteous. He has cut in pieces the cords of the wicked, right? He is risen. He is risen. Uh, let all 
all those who hate Zion, this is more against your enemies, let all those who hate Zion be put to shame and turned back. Let them be like grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor he who binds sheaves his arms. Neither let those who pass by them say the blessing of Jesus Christ be upon you, nor we bless you in the name of Jesus Christ. That, I mean, I'm going to translate that for you. That means let them go to hell. That's what it means. As for those who hate Zion, as for those who hate Jesus, so be it. Let them go to hell. If that's what they're going to get, let them go. One of the worst, weakest things about modern Lutheranism, we don't like hell. Hell is one of the best parts of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know who hell was built for? Satan. Thank God for hell. Oh my goodness, right? But it's so hard. It's mean, right? Hell's mean. And we've just been, we've been, we've had the life sucked out of us. So being able, being freed to pray for your enemies with the words of the Psalter, which means you don't have to like try to say, I should pray for my enemies. No, you're just going to pray Psalm 124 and 129 every day, and God will pray about your enemies through you <laughs> with his words. Right? Oh, the last thing we want to do is try to fix his words. Just let his words be your words for a year, for a month. Let them change the inside. And see if, again, the bravery doesn't start to just show up a little bit. So Psalm 126 and 128 are about going home for dinner with the family. If you don't have a family, you can pray about having a family. Many young men want one eventually. And if you don't plan to have one, then you can pray about all the other families. <laughs> and how you at church are part of the member of the, the body of Christ. Yeah, but, but here, very much, you have kind of restored household talk. Um, uh, when Jesus Christ brought back the captivity of Zion, and that language is about the return from exile. Uh, when Jesus brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue was singing. Then they said among the nations, Jesus Christ has done great things for us. Jesus Christ has done great things for us, and we are glad. Blessed be Jesus Christ, who has not given us his prey to their teeth. We have escaped as a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare, I just, I just messed that one up, though. As prayer of their teeth, I skipped. Bring back our captivity, O Jesus Christ, as verse 4, as streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him, right? So as you're coming home from work, you've done the labor of the day, you don't know if it's going to be enough. Maybe you do. Maybe you got no more money and you know what to do with. And that's the problem you got. In either case, you've sown the seed. It's time to rest. It's time to put down the work. It's time to go pray with the family, eat the meal, be people again, right? instead of being the machines that we are. And this prayer asks for that. It even says, like, when that happens, I laugh. <laughs> I find joy in this. Yeah? And then uh, 128, blessed is everyone who fears Jesus. There's that fear. Who walks in his ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house. Your sons like olive shoots all around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your sons. Shalom all Israel. Peace be upon Israel. So again, you know, prayer for the family, pray for the table, prayer for the neighborhood, prayer for the congregation, all wrapped into one. Um, and then before bed, if you notice, they get shorter as you go. So you got less to do as you get to the end of the day. Psalm 130, absolutely one of the best ones you could just pick up by itself uh, every night. You could say this. Uh, Out of the depths, I've cried to you, O Jesus Christ, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Jesus Christ, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand. But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. My soul waits for Jesus Christ, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for Jesus Christ more than watchmen for the morning. Yes, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in Jesus Christ from this time forth and even forevermore. O Jesus Christ, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, neither I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I've calmed and quieted my soul as a weaned child with his mother. As a weaned child is my soul with his, in me. O Israel, hope in Jesus Christ from this time forth and even forevermore. I think I messed up the end of 130 there. I, I keep adding the, the end of 131 to 130. It's an ongoing bad habit that I have. So trying to remedy that. But 
So you got there, and there's nine of them. I pray a tenth one um, that I pick up uh, in the midday. I add 149 if you want to try. You get to have a two-edged sword in your hand every day. It's kind of cool. Um, but the idea, again, is now, what happens if all of you take me up on this and go home and you just you do nothing more than read it out loud every day? You don't even pay attention. I mean, 10%. Pay attention. Nothing more. You do that for a year. You all come back here next year. What's going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen is the bond you're going to find when you come back, if it's strong now with guys who've been coming for years, it's just going to go because you're going to have a common language of prayer every day. And I'd love to think that come Lord Jesus will do it, but it doesn't. It's not enough. And again, the, the gateway here is that from this, God willing, the Psalter becomes something you're not afraid of. Like one day, you get to Psalm 131, and you go, what's 132 about? Uh, and you read it, right? Or you're stumbling through, and you find your way to 27, which really can be part of your armor with great regularity. It's powerful, powerful language. Um, so, Sons of Solomon is that gambit, that test, that guess, that hope, that prayer, that some of us, all of us, We'll pick up the Psalter as our weapon. Um, I mentioned the name of Jesus Christ and you heard it read. I want to defend this a little bit here and we have a, a piece in the booklet for you on that. That's on page three that we skipped over. Because this is one of the things that uh, has changed my prayer life, changed my view of the Old Testament, definitely changed the way I read the Proverbs. Was realizing the most obvious thing is super obvious. I mean, what, it's, the, it's the primary confession of the church. Jesus is Lord. That, that's the early confession of the church. Peter, who do you say that I am? Right? Oh, you are the Christ, right? You have to confess Jesus is Lord. Uh, early Christians are dying because they won't just pinch incense and say Jesus or Caesar is Lord because they believe Jesus is Lord. But this idea of Jesus being Lord, it's not about Jesus being Caesar. He's greater than Caesar, um, he's Lord. Well, who's Lord? Well, if you have the Old Testament in Greek, which they all did, that's God. And, and it isn't the word God. The word God shows up all over the place. It isn't the word Lord, Adonai. Adonai shows up all over the place. It's the name of God, which now these days the Jews talk about the name. They don't talk about God. They talk about the name, the word, the name. They don't actually say the name. They won't say the name. They haven't said the name since before Jesus. Instead of the name, they'd say the Lord. The name was Yahweh or Jehovah. We're not really sure how it's pronounced. But what we do know is that that name is built into the root system of the name Jesus. So when you say Jesus, you say Jehovah, whether you like it or not. It's the same name, uh, except it's added the word saves to it. So Jesus isn't just Yahweh. He's Yahweh saving, which makes a lot of sense uh, if you think about it. Um, so, uh, well, again, though, so Jesus, who is Yahweh saving, uh, he is that God of the Old Testament who we say, praise the Lord, right? Only if you look in the, in the Hebrew, there's no the Lord there at all. It's the name Yahweh. In fact, a lot of times if you see praise the Lord in, in your English, you know what's there in the Hebrew? Alleluia. <laughs> it's just the word hallelujah. Yeah. Hallelujah. Amen. Um, so, so Jesus is Lord. What does this mean? The New Testament church had no question that Jesus of Nazareth is the God of the Old Testament. And when you read about the God of the Old Testament, that's Jesus. Now, if you want to like be very narrow, you can find places in the Old Testament where that, that all caps the Lord shows up. And you can say, if I put Jesus there, I'd become a Trinitarian heretic. And you'd be right. There's like three places where it can't mean Jesus. It has to mean the Father or the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, but every other place, it can mean Jesus. And, and why not? Now, someone might also say, but aren't they all always working together? And the answer is, yes, they are. That's the whole point. But how do they work? The Spirit proceeds from the Father to awaken your heart to see and confess Jesus, who then intercedes between you and the Father because the Father is an all-consuming, powerful fire and he's raging against evil and sin and you're full of it. So you can't get near him. But Jesus is there in the middle 
right? And so who's the Lord you actually get to see and face and touch, or may I say eat? Jesus is. So taking that small amount of knowledge that then is affirmed again and again, right? Philippians 2.11, every tongue shall confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Romans 10.9, confess with your mouth Jesus Christ is Lord. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So when you're in your Old Testament and you see that all caps Lord, just, just read the name Jesus into it. And if you do that with your Psalter, it, it blows the thing up. Like in a good way. Uh, and the Proverbs is the same way. And um, let me try to, we've got a little bit of time here. I'll try to show you a little bit. If you have your Bible, uh, I did it already, but let's do it again. Proverbs chapter 3. Probably the most famous proverb is Proverbs 3 verse 5, I would think. If you're like, like all Christians everywhere all the time. Um, and it's and worth it, you know. Most famous psalm is probably Psalm 23 for good reason. You know, excellent reason. Uh, so, Proverbs 3, verse 5, you will have heard it as, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Which is, is fine. Like, there's nothing wrong. It's not mistranslated or something like that. But do you, do you feel the difference between trust in the Lord with all your might and trust in Jesus with all your might? Did you hear the difference in that? For me, the difference is freedom, actually. When I hear trust in the Lord, I feel like I'm supposed to do something. I feel like I owe something. I feel like I've, I, I haven't done enough trusting, frankly. When I hear someone say trust in Jesus, I remember that I can't, but I do. I don't have to, but I am. And that's freeing to me. So to me, Proverbs 3 verse 5 is, is some level of gospel. And you can categorize it in law and condemn yourself with it if you want. But when I get to hear, trust in Jesus with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, all that means is I can just stop trying. <laughs> I just stop. Let him. What a powerful Again, he's bought me with his blood. This isn't some Old Testament fire god hidden behind a Sinai cloud and a veil. I mean, he is, but no, he's not. He's come out. The veil is torn. Uh, he's, he's our king and our brother now. There's a great freedom in all of this. And that, that language of the Lord, I think it keeps him at arm's length. It keeps him far away and inhuman a little bit. Now, who is that? The Lord. And we tend to, uh, you know, push it into the Father a little bit, I think, which is fine as long as he's the Father of, as he's the father of Jesus, you know, the one who is merciful and steadfast and all these things. So, in any case, Jesus is Lord. Uh, Inserting Jesus' name into your Old Testament understanding, and you see that David is praying to Jesus, uh, will transform the way you experience the Old Testament. And, and I would suggest it will open up a lot to you. There are a couple other pieces of this uh, document that are, are worth looking at. Um, page 15 gives you the rest of the kind of official Sons of Solomon discipline. So you want to be like a, you want the t-shirt too, right? Um, so you also then, along with praying the Psalms, reading the, the Proverbs every day, um, you're going to carry a Bible wherever you go, and you're going to carry a crucifix with you wherever you go, which could be in your pocket or otherwise. And some guys wear crosses instead of crucifixes, but why a crucifix? It's because it's, listen carefully, it's bane to sacramentarians. And so if we want to like infiltrate the sacramentarians with this document, and they can do all of it except that crucifix part. Maybe they fall over the crucifix part, and then they figure out the Lord's Supper after that. Because that is, it's the same argument. I don't know if that makes sense, and I can explain it later while we're drinking or whatever, but the reason the guy doesn't like the crucifix has something to do with their view of the incarnation, which has everything to do then with the way they view the Lord's Supper, usually. Um, there are inconsistencies in that. So carrying a crucifix, carrying a Bible, the point is a discipline that makes you visible. So carrying a Bible every day, I got the pocket one so I can put it in my back pocket, right? If you see me around that way, I don't have to have the discipline of two hands, right? But that's kind of the idea. Life changes quite a bit when you only got one hand. And so what happens if you make your faith something you have to struggle with on purpose just to make yourself have to struggle with it? Stop taking the easy way out. Right. Um, and so again, I finally bought a pocket one rather than carry the big one. I used to carry a giant crucifix till the hand broke off, and now I just wear the, wear the one. But the idea is the discipline of it, to visibly look different, to not be ashamed of your faith and your heritage as a Lutheran, because as Lutherans, the crucifix is ours. It is absolutely ours. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Um, and then the Bible is ours. Right? And then to have it at your ready, um, it, it took a while for me to start using it. But you know, sometimes in, in the line at the grocery store, just pop that thing right open. 
read a couple of verses. It's kind of weird. It's distracting. You feel like people are looking at you, but then again, it's like, what planet am I on? You know? You know? Right? So, like, uh, so, carry a Bible. Um, then, hopefully, you are well catechized enough to realize pages 16, 17, and 18 are a way to smuggle yet more good stuff uh, into non-Lutheran congregations. They won't even know it's the catechism. They'll be like, where'd you get this? This creed thing, what's that? You know? Uh, so, um, page 19 and 20 are very important also. This is not officially part of the discipline, but it's behind why I think we need a men's movement. Remember, I started tonight by suggesting this is just a tool for a men's movement rooted in Christian ideas. Um, But one of the reasons we need a men's movement is because we uh, have had patriarchy, which is the biblical teaching of manhood, stolen from us. Um, destroyed before our eyes and even turned into the great boogeyman of of the evil Satan itself. And uh, I don't doubt that in the history of the world there have been evil men who have abused their women and their privileges with their women, but I don't think that's any reason for good men to stop being good fathers. And patriarchy simply means the rule of the father or the significance of the father. So any attack on patriarchy as a theology is an attack on the father of Jesus Christ and therefore an attack on God. This is why Black Lives Matter isn't about black lives, and because in their Marxist documents that found them, they talk about destroying the patriarchy, destroying fatherhood. Um, so Sons of Solomon says, wait, 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 wait. We're all for the patriarchy because the Bible's all for the patriarchy. Why? Because the fourth commandment says, honor your father. That's why. And that really is it. The fourth commandment is the patriarchy. And some of them might say, it says, and your mother. You're right, it does. And Eve was formed second, and we can go to all the other texts about how she follows her husband. But the point is, the patriarchy is under attack, and even that argument, what about the mother, is continuing to attack the patriarchy. Uh, So to recover that the fourth commandment is, fathers, rule your houses, is very important for us right now. It's not just about how our kids ought to be better behaved, if only, right? Uh, No, it's about how we uh, don't want to drop the ball of passing authority to the next generation in the things that matter. So the patriarch principle is is an attempt to teach this kind of from the side so that if if you follow my stuff, I always want to attack from the side because from the front, they're trying to hit you. And so I want to dodge and then hit the side. And so to kind of come at patriarchy from the side is to show how it's not just about like above, down, there's, like a, there's a spectrum going on here, and you can see it drawn out there, that all authority comes from above to below for those further below still. Um, what does that mean? It means if I have any authority, I only have it because someone higher up gave it to me. That's the only way it works. And then if I have it, I didn't get it for me. He didn't give it to me for me. I'm never given authority for me. I'm given authority for the one that I'm over. And that's for them, not for me. And the purest, most beautiful example of this would be a father and his newborn son, who if he picks up his newborn son, you can see he has total authority. He can lift him, he can set him down, he can change his diaper, he could probably even take him to the mother to feed him, right? He can do all that stuff. Uh, he has all that authority, but is it for the father? No, it's to protect the son. And if the father thinks it's just about having fun with the kid, it's going to be a very sad kid. So authorities from above to below for those further below still. Um, And then from this idea, you can read page 20 if you want um, later. Uh, From this idea, here's where I don't know quite what I'm going to say or how I'm going to say it, but what I'm learning, what I'm seeing happen, and I know it was my own experience as well, is that there's a lack of permission to to try uh, among American men. And a lot of us are kind of hanging out, waiting for someone else to say go. And that could be about a lot of different things. This could be about learning to do the electrical work in your basement, right? It could be learning about, it could be about stockpiling food for your terror of whatever. It, it, it doesn't matter. The point is, whatever it is we're all kind of wanting, we're also not sure if we should, and we're waiting for someone to say it's all right. And what Sons of Solomon tries to do is say, 
It's all right, go. And the way that it does that is this patriarch principle, which again is not only that authority is given above to below for those further below still, but that it means in any group of gathered people, but men as well, so men particularly, uh, there will and must always be a loudest voice. There will and must always be a group father, a speaker. You can call it a shepherd. Pastors do this in their congregations, but politicians do it for cities. Fathers do it in their homes. In any group that gathers, one man will inevitably rise to the front and speak. Hello, I'm doing it right now. It doesn't quite mean that I'm your king, but it does mean that at the moment there's a certain level of authority that I am wielding over you, right? So uh, to see again that in any given moment, there needs to be that. That's good. We don't want a group of men saying, we're not sure what to do. Do you want to lead us? I don't really know. What do you think? That doesn't help us. What does your wife think? We should check with them. That really doesn't help us. I really mean that. Like, there's things to talk to your ladies about, but if we're asking every decision be approved by the Board of Women, we're not who we're supposed to be. And so, again, uh, to come back to the... Uh, I, I got off the, that, that last point there with the ladies for a second. Uh, 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 in any given group of men, if nobody is leading, then you should. And that's the patriarch principle. If nobody else is stepping up and saying, let's go this way because we're all lost, then step up and say, let's go this way. And you're like, but do I have permission? I'm giving you permission. You're a man. You're supposed to try. You're not supposed to be able to stand it when it doesn't work. It's supposed to drive you crazy and you go and you make it work. Now, there's a lot of us out there doing that too these days, and we're like, you know, new puppies, haven't learned how to pee outside yet, and we can get ourselves caught in some trouble. But, but nonetheless, what's missing is the permission. And I want to suggest to you that your anointing in Jesus Christ, which Lutherans, we call that baptism, uh, you're being anointed by Jesus Christ as a man redeemed in his image, a brother in the, the heavenly band of his people, uh, that you have every right and more so the duty to figure out what it is that needs to be done around you and do it without waiting for somebody else to tell you it's a good thing. And if you don't know the difference between good and evil, then read the Proverbs and the Psalms every day for a year and you will. And you'll start to want to do something, be tired of sitting back and certainly not not think that you need to wait for permission to do good. To do good. Um, so page 22 kind of sums that up. You, know, you are the patriarch until there is another. I mean, if you're in a room and somebody else really needs to be the leader, well, maybe he should be the leader. Maybe he shouldn't, right? You, you have to work that out as a group of guys wherever you are. But to go back to the men's movement, what you can do with this document, you can Four, five, seven, twelve of your guys at your church all doing this together for a year. You'll be stunned what it does to you as a group of guys. And then who starts to emerge as your various leaders at different times? You know, how much it inspires you that you can see each other as leaders, that you don't have to be in charge, but you can each take turns running whatever needs to be run because you understand that authority is always given from above to below for those further below still. So you don't have to, you don't have to be in charge, right? um, but you can be. And that's, that's the kind of men we want to be, right? Don't have to be in charge, but we can be if we need to. You are the patriarch until there is another. Uh, dead men cannot die. Uh, you're baptized into Christ. Uh, uh, do you know where that's from? Is that why you're giggling at it? No? no? It's a great phrase, right? Does anybody know where I ripped that off from? Game of Thrones. Yeah, and I can't even think of the house. Remember the house name? Greyjoy, Gray, 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 Gray right? Gray right? The Kraken guys, right? They're these, these pirate castle rock, I don't know, icy water place guys. And, and they, it's amazing. Game of Thrones is a, is, a, is a true study on the collapse of Western civilization. I do not recommend you watch it. Um, reading it, however, can be uh, enlightening, given that you know, the series basically takes you from a lot of hope over five books to absolute despair and atheistic, nihilistic madness by the end. There's no hope. It's all over. You're all going to die. That's the story. And this is like the greatest epic written in the last 50 years. 
Like that, that's it. That's what we got to offer is we're all going to die. <laughs> uh, but there's some good ripoff that he does of history. And one thing he rips off is baptism. So these radical Viking warriors, one of the things they do before they go out to, to fight is they all get baptized. And they get down to the water. They get drowned. Like they get held underwater until they start to drown. And then they come up again and they take a big deep breath and they think they're born again. And they say dead men cannot die. And they go off to war unafraid. And I just don't see why that's not what we think baptism is because that's what baptism is. Is the entire, that's exactly what baptism is. Why do the pagans get to have these images and believe in these ideas or even live like the Vikings did? And we cannot, we do not have that inspiration. I, I don't think we don't. I think Christians do. I do. I think we're under demonic assault. I think the assault is white noise that has numbed us. And so it's, it's hard to get a footing on your own brain. Uh, and then again, well, that's what this will do. It'll insert an injection of you know, uh, biblical steroids four times a day, right in the joint that hurts. <laughs> uh, and over time, uh, it'll start to mold you uh, as a man. Is it the only way you could do this? No, no. But it's the one that we got, and it seems to be working pretty well. Uh, one other uh, thing that might not jump out to you right away is on page 21. Duties of a man and duties of a king. That's just the Lord's Prayer uh, rethought as tasks. Like, what am I praying for God to have me do, right? So if I say, hallowed be God's name, I'm praying that he would have me hallow his name. So that's then my duty is to make his name holy, to use it in a holy way, right? Uh, for his kingdom to come, what does that look like? It means I act like I'm in the kingdom. <laughs> I know that the kingdom is here, so I'm going to reflect his kingdom, right? And so you can go through that on your own again and see that. All of those are kind of toys and teases trying to like, if you got the Baptist on the hook with this and you can get him praying the Psalms in Jesus' name, I mean, that's an amazing thing, by the way. You get a Baptist praying the Psalms in Jesus' name, that's how you change the world. Um, but they have this document with them and then they got the small catechism and they got, oh, the Lord's Prayer is really important and all this stuff and they don't even know it. So there's a whole lot in here to, to discover. It's a bit of a riddle and a game. Uh, but my, my challenge to you, especially if you're the guys that come every year to this, is, you know, pact with each other a little bit. Don't make vows. But, you know, agree with each other that you're going to do this for a year. Um, and, and maybe even then, if you're all spreading out and going home other places, you know, try to get a couple of guys in the congregation at each spot. You know, let's just get together once a month, once a week, talk about whatever. But we're going to hold each other accountable for this um, and see what happens. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. 
Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.